welcome to Radical Math Talk, the podcast dedicated to the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I will highlight the incredible educators who are reshaping, redefining, and decolonizing the way that math education is taught in our schools. In other words, this will not be your typical math podcast. My goal is to center the stories and hidden truths that will not only ignite a cultural paradigm shift in math education, but more specifically, explore the multiple ways in which math can be used as a vehicle for social justice and anti-racist solidarity. So if you are ready for a math revolution like no other, then sit back, relax, and lend me your ears as we embark on this journey together. Enjoy the show. Hey, what's good, everybody? Welcome to a brand new episode of Radical Math Talk, the show for the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Salfamensa. And if this is your first time tuning in to the podcast, we welcome you and I hope that you return for future episodes and new content moving forward. And if you are a returning listener or viewer of the podcast, I welcome you back and I hope that today's episode is one that you find informative enlightening and of course insightful and as we come down to the home stretch of this first season of radical math talk just want to remind our new and also our older listeners and viewers that you can subscribe to this podcast on youtube just hit that red subscribe button to get future episodes of this podcast and we are also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other streaming platforms. So make sure you subscribe there as well. And you can check out past episodes of the podcast on our official website, identitytalk4educators.com. So make sure you, you hit us up there. And then finally, for people who want to monetarily contribute to this podcast and its growth, uh, we do accept donations through Cash App and Venmo. So if you're on Cash App, our handle is money sign ID talk for Ed. And if you're on Venmo, you can reach us with the handle at symbol Kwame SM. That's at symbol K-W-A-M-E-S-M. Thank you kindly for all the support throughout the season. And I'm excited to have on um, a guest who is no stranger to the Day Talk family. Um, usually I don't do a whole lot of repeat guests, but tonight's guest is somebody who I knew I had to bring back for round two because we had such a, an incredible conversation around restorative justice in the classroom. But I knew that I wanted to bring her back to talk more about restorative justice, but within the context of math classroom, within the context of math education because there's so many things that we have to cover to really break that down. And it's a necessary conversation to have, just like all the other ones we have on this podcast. But listen, I don't want to take up too much time. I want to get into this conversation. So without further ado, I want to bring on Neha Sabti to the podcast to talk with us about restorative practices in the math classroom at the K-12 level. So uh, let's get it, y'all. Neha. Hello, hello. How we doing? I'm great. So happy to be here again. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's 
good to have you back. Um, we are, I know we said that we're going to do a part two. Mm-hmm. We didn't know when, but it's almost a year to the day uh, that you are here. Um, so for those that didn't get a chance to see Neha the first time on our flagship podcast, I Dang Talk for Educators Live, y'all make sure y'all check that out. I believe that's episode number 93. So make sure y'all check that out on the YouTube uh, channel. And yeah, you'll you'll definitely enjoy it. We we talked for I think ninety minutes. I think it might be. <laughs> it was a long time. Second. It was a good conversation. It's definitely top five in terms of uh, longest podcast episodes we've had. But every minute was worth it. And I know folks who have watched have gained a lot from it. So so thank you for giving that time. Of course, I love talking to other radical educators and. I love talking about math as well, which is something that I don't get to talk about as much. So I'm really excited. <laughs> All right. So let's get right in. So on this podcast, uh, we always love to start things off with our mathography. So the mathography is basically your math autobiography. Yeah. Every person who's a math lover or a non-math lover has a story about math. Mm-hmm. that applies to their life. So in this story, we'd love for you to just share how you first encountered math as a child, how you first fell in love with it, how you've grown with it over time, and how you're able to still maintain that love for it to this present day. So however you want to uh, tackle this question, it's all on you. Awesome. I love the idea of methography. I used to do it with my students as well. I feel like it's a very restorative practice. So I love that this is the first question um, grounded in story and identity building. Um, I, you know, I have very few, I think when I was growing up, like in school, my math history, (laughs) I think wasn't that inspiring. I can't really remember any teachers who taught me math in a way that I really remembered. I didn't have much of a connection to my math teachers. Um, It was a lot of rote memorization, copying off the whiteboard or the, not even the whiteboard, whatever that camera thing was, the projector board, Um, Mm -hmm. a lot of copying notes (laughs) and things like that. So I don't have a lot of fond memories in in my K through 12 education around math which is probably why I became the math educator that I became because I kind of knew what it was like to be bored in the math classroom. I didn't really have a lot of connection there. I didn't really have much connection in my schooling in general in terms of my identity, my culture, um, because I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas and went to majority white schools. And my home life was very much South Asian, Indian, and all of my friends outside of school were South Asian and Indian, but in school I went to mostly white, were mostly white environments. So I had a, a big disconnect, but now that I've really like thought about and deconstructed what it means to do math, I've thought of a lot of ways in which my mother taught me math and my mother was a mathematician. Um, she used to, in her youth, create art using these needlework and string and they're very geometric art pieces. Oh, cool. um, 
Yeah. And she, you know, like any immigrant mother made everything from scratch. <laughs> so a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of creation was happening. A lot of geometry was happening. And then of course, just being in the kitchen all the time with my mother learning how to cook. So a lot of different ways that math has shown up in my childhood, but those connections weren't being made for me. So I didn't, I, I didn't at that time think that those things were mathematical or doing mathematics. Um, that's really something that I've made connections more recently. So then I actually, I don't know if a lot of, I like sharing this story because I wonder if other people have had this experience. I was pretty disconnected from math. I thought I wanted to be a doctor like a lot of, again, uh, South Asian immigrant children thought, you know, that was our only career path. Um, but I just had horrible experiences in my math classrooms in college as well. And my science classes that just felt very separated from connection and relationships that I was craving and um, any type of social justice orientation or equity orientation. It was just very rote memorization, regurgitation. And so I wasn't thriving in those classrooms. I didn't feel good in those classrooms. Probably I could have studied a little harder, but <laughs> I didn't desire to. <laughs> I didn't desire to. I was very miserable. And so, yeah, so then I started going down this, like, uh, I, I, I went into the fields of human development and social services, thought I wanted to be a therapist, and then really got into ethnic studies. And so I started studying African-American studies, Asian-American studies, Latinx studies, Latin American studies. So that became kind of my path. And then when I left college, I was working in nonprofits. I, and that kind of ended up volunteering in schools. And I had a, a principal tell me that I should really become a teacher. And I thought that that might be a good way to, you know, give back and do good in the world, like become a teacher. I felt it was very much a social justice career path and that felt good to me. So I joined the, te the teaching collaborative is what was in New York City at the time. It's an offshoot of teaching fellows. And if you went into teaching collaborative teaching fellows, I just wonder if there's more people like me. I actually had some credits of math not the requirement. 30 was the requirement, I believe. Oh, 30, okay. Yeah, 30 was the requirement to become a math teacher in New York City. And I had maybe 20. So I had to take those math classes. But they pushed me into the math and into getting a math license because I had any at all. Because there's such a deficit of math teachers and science teachers in the United States that they're kind of desperate to get math and science teachers into the classroom. So it's right. a huge, a huge issue basically <laughs> that we are, we have basically people who were don't have a, I won't say like a sufficient math background, but don't have a lot of math classes under their belt, but are getting right. being kind of pushed into being a math teacher. I found it very beneficial for me, but I just wonder not that, we can't be math teachers, but what support are we giving individuals who are becoming math teachers that maybe don't haven't had a lot of experience with math? And I was teaching with um, a couple teachers who did have master's degrees in math. So I got 
I got a, a lot of the conceptual understanding that I lacked in my entire education of rote memorization and repetition. <laughs> I got just from speaking to them and my love for math really sparked by being in community with people who had a deep love for mathematics and could point me in the better directions than my teachers had growing up into really understanding and falling in love with math. And so I got really lucky, but I wonder if there's other people out there that got pushed into becoming math teachers or science teachers and they didn't get that support. Um, and I wonder, you know, are they still in the classroom? <laughs> and, wow. and, you know, are they just replicating some of the harmful practices that we got growing up? But I was really lucky that I did have a community of math teachers at the school that I started teaching at. And my math department was... Uh, incredibly inspiring. And I learned a lot from them, not just how to teach math, but just how to love math and how to understand math and mathematics in the real world and all of that. So um, that's a little bit of my story. Oh, wow. And this is a different story from what most guests share on this podcast. Usually it's right. the more positive one where I love math from the beginning loved it all the way through the college and even decided to pursue a career that was math focused. But in your case, you had some negative experiences growing up involving your math teachers at that time. And then you didn't even really study math in college right? or at least at the undergrad level. Right. But then later on in life, coming out of undergrad, you encounter math again accidentally it sounds like <laughs> yeah. so thankfully you had some veteran teachers who came in and sparked a love for math that allowed you to become the best teacher you can be but i'm wondering from you how do those early experiences that you had as a child yeah. inform the way that you have taught math in your own classrooms yeah, I think one, the biggest way is that I have a deep understanding of what it means to feel unseen and bored, ultimately bored right. <laughs> in a math classroom. I mean, and I, and I think, I, I mean, I was, I had a lot of support at home in terms of, you know, both my parents are professionals and kind of could guide me like into what schooling is. You know what I mean? So I knew how to like navigate the bureaucracy of schooling. And, you know, I had a little bit of that institutional knowledge coming from them. So I, I did okay in my math classes, but I was so disconnected and didn't care at all and was so bored and felt deeply unseen as well. Being oftentimes I was an Asian girl and it was mostly white boys in like the in these white in like the calculus class I took or whatever, um, you know, and I think about I was now that I think about it, there was tracking happening. And wow. I was oftentimes, even though I consider myself not not a at that time, I don't think I would consider myself a mathematician because I felt so disengaged. But I was being tracked in the higher level tracks because I got to take calculus and things like that. And I don't think everyone else in my school 
had access to calculus. So that's interesting. So I was in these higher tracks. Um, so, but I was often, you know, the only Asian girl. And so I just think a lot about what it is to feel completely disconnected from math and what it feels to be um, your identity not being reflected in the math classroom at all, not being seen, not really trusting your teacher, not really having a relationship with your teacher in the math classroom, how that makes you feel really like not wanting to ask questions or really struggle that much, you know, or it makes you want to be hidden or it makes you feel like maybe this isn't for you, for you. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you're tr being tracked in high school. I wonder, yeah. Now, was it a situation where you tested in to those classes or you're just assigned uh, the track that you were given? <clears throat> okay. I have to really think about it because. Right. <laughs> so I'm wondering if there were some bias that played a role in yes. you being in that track. Right. Give me your identity. <laughs> exactly. Maybe. Yeah. Um, honestly, I think, I don't know. I would have to go back and, and ask some people, some other maybe people that I went to high school with and ask what's going on there. We didn't have to uh, test into those higher tracks. I wonder if it was grade point average or yeah, maybe it was incredibly biased because if I was surrounded by, I, I as an Asian woman, and one of like the three Asian people that were at the school and it was me and only white boys. <laughs> Obviously there's a gender and possibly a racial bias happening there. Um, yeah. yeah. I wonder if it was teacher selection or if it was um, GPA, who knows, but massive, obviously I, speaking to my friends who were in different classes, who were in like the accelerated or like the regular algebra class while I was in calculus, I know that they, the tracking system to some of my female friends that I've spoken to was incredibly damaging and made them feel like they really had no access to mathematics at all. So tracking we know is an incredibly biased and harmful part of education that still exists today in many schools um so yeah but tracking is also one of the main reasons why it's necessary to have restorative practices in the math classroom mm -hmm. because it goes back to the trauma that we all feel Right. From either being tracked or even not being tracked into the higher level courses. Right. It can go both ways. Right. But I want to get more into that. So we're going to segue into the show your work segment of the podcast. Great. Uh, show your work is probably the most popular phrase in math classrooms. Damn it, every teacher that I know uses this phrase. Yeah. Show your work. <laughs> Students come up with their work. They probably give you a solution, but they're not showing you the steps that they took to get to the solution. Right. You're like, okay, I need to. Sh I need you to show some evidence as to how you got to this point, mm -hmm. just so you can demonstrate that you understood what I was teaching you. Right. So go ahead, show your work. That's something that we say all the time. But in the context of this podcast, show your work is really about showing your receipts okay and, <laughs> and you you got some receipts no you're humble but you're doing some pretty powerful work 
as it pertains to what restorative justice and even to a higher degree transformative justice mm-hmm. looks like in our different K to 12 schools. So we want to talk about that, uh, but specifically within the math context, because this is radical math talk. So let, let's get in. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> so I know the last time you were here, mm-hmm. we had a whole hour and a half conversation about restorative practices, but we didn't really get into what transformative justice is because even though there is similarities between that and restorative justice transformative justice seems like it's an offspring of that with some different variables so i would love for you to just help us distinguish between both of those concepts sure so depending on who you speak to, everybody has different definitions of transformative and restorative justice. Um, So this is just kind of my understanding and what I'm working with currently, but it changes often. So I just wanted to give that disclaimer. Um, So restorative justice, I really see and understand as our interconnection and our internal work, although our internal work also matters for both, but it's really that interpersonal work that were is the mechanism of restorative justice. So building relationship, um, resolving conflict, and uh, you know, uh, tending to the needs of people who have been harmed or people who are harmed. So things like that, that interpersonal level. And transformative justice says, well, that's not really enough because a lot of the harm that's happening is actually happening from institutions and structures in our society that are causing perpetual harm on individual people. So while we're doing this interpersonal work, we also need to be deconstructing and reimagining these institutions and structures that are constantly causing us harm. And so that is where the transformative justice work really lies. The reason why it's a little complicated in education is because we are intimately attached to the institution when you're working, the institution of education and schooling when we're working in schools. So although I feel like I have a transformative mindset, I am working within the school district. I'm working within a school that's an institution. These districts and schools are causing perpetual harm to black and brown bodies. Um, And so I can't really say that on a day-to-day basis, I'm doing the work of transformative justice because I work in the institution, but I definitely have a transformative mindset. But most of the work that I do is restorative justice. So building, relate, learning how to build relationships and, and learning how to resolve harm when it comes up, restore, restore relationships when harm occurs. And I do feel like also the way these things are in these two terms are interconnected is sometimes the work of restorative justice acts as a microcosm of how we would like the world or we imagine the world to be um, when we transform it. So I like Mm -hmm. to think that the work of restorative justice is practice for the freedom, for the liberation that we will experience hopefully one day. Or maybe our ancestors. We'll be ancestors. Well, maybe our children will experience it. But right now we're practicing. This is so interesting because, as you mentioned, with restorative practices, we deal with that on an interpersonal level. Right. Like one-to-one. Like, what do I need to do as an individual 
to repair harm to this other individual. And it really doesn't matter how well you how well you do it with others. Ultimately, like you mentioned, you're still doing it within an institution mm-hmm. that has policies that are cis heteronormative. Yes. You still have policies that are racist, mm-hmm. inherently racist, and uh homophobic. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of an oxymoron. Yes, we're going to repair harm um, between each other. Right. But we're doing it within this paradigm that is still harmful systemically. Yeah. So, so I'm glad that you even brought up the transformative part. Yeah, I think, um, and it's so important to understand that because even on the interpersonal level, you'll find that those things come up if you don't have an understanding of how systems have been created under a notion of anti-Blackness and white superiority and white supremacy. If you don't understand how that might manifest in today's world through reading, understanding, listening, talking to people of color and their different experiences and all those ways. If you don't have an understanding of that, then when you get down to that interpersonal level and how that's manifesting in our everyday lives, in our everyday psyches, in our everyday, how we communicate, how we choose to communicate, how we choose, what we choose to do today, right? It, it manifests in so many little different ways in our everyday lives, microaggressions in, um, you know, different ways that implicit bias shows up then we won't be able to um, act with the clarity and the understanding that we need to, even at the interpersonal level. So that's why I say I like to have a transformative mindset, even though even when I'm working in um, within the limitations of a very racist, imperialist education system. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And since we're on that subject and focus on the math context, yeah. Uh, for our listeners and viewers who may be hearing these terms for the first time and have no idea what we're talking about, <laughs> I'd love for you to just share as best you can a cliff nose version okay. <laughs> of what restorative practices and anti-racism would look like and possibly sound like within a math classroom okay. at a K-12 level. Yeah. So it could be just some examples, but not a whole dissertation because that's really a whole episode in itself. And I, and I understand that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so in terms of an anti-racist standpoint, I there are a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say a lot, but a lot, a, a few really strong, important voices that are talking about anti-racism in the, in the in the math classroom. In terms of restorative justice in the math classroom, I feel like I am really creating these ideas a little bit myself and with some with some friends. Um, so these are all new things that we're like talking about within the restorative justice sphere um, because in education, restorative justice is really siphoned off into like culture and school discipline. So restorative justice as a pedagogy of how we of our like instructional lens is something I think that is only we're kind of just talking about now. So all these things are just ideas that I'm going to be talking about. But and, uh, you know, and they're also very individualized to whatever you're experiencing in your context. 
And I think that that we forget that we think that we hear, you know, this is an anti-racist tool or a restorative justice tool. Um, but none of these things can be generalized to any context. So just want to give those disclaimers. But uh, in terms of the core of restorative justice in the math classroom is building relationship. That is the core of any restorative justice practice and being in right relationship. So the way I've been thinking about it lately is that in the math classroom, a little bit what you said before as well is that we have to have we have to be in right relationship with each other in the math classroom, teachers and students and students among each other. Um, and we have to be in right relationship with math, which is very hard because many of us have had incredibly traumatizing experiences with math and continue to, um, you know, to the point where sometimes I talk about this movie, Three Idiots. It's a movie that uh, is, it's a Bollywood movie. And it kind of talks about in the Indian education system, how much depression and suicide happen within engineering schools. Um, and just the pressure that uh, people all across the world feel towards succeeding in mathematics in this very harmful way that is causing mental health issues, it's causing depression, it's causing suicide. That's, that's, I kind of just say that because I just want people to understand how, what a kind of harmful, traumatic system we've created in, in, in this idea that math is going to make us win in the capitalist system or something like that. But we've created this narrative around math and these institutions that are causing so much harm. So we have to also repair that. So these, this is kind of the primary mechanism of restorative justice in the math classroom and the way that I've been promoting or talking about how we can do that more is definitely things like a methography talking to our students regularly about their experiences, their past experiences, their current experiences in their class math classroom. I think we feel like math is, there's this idea that math is objective and that's what gives mm -hmm. math power because objectivity is the ultimate truth. <laughs> you know, we like, we are thriving to be the most objective and the most, um, you know, uh, without bias and without, and, but what ends up happening is then the math classroom really becomes a place void of context, void of relationship, void of feeling, void of our real creativity. life experience. creativity, right? Right. So that's the consequence of this paradigm around which we're functioning with, with math is, you know, the objective truth or whatever like that. So, you know, just questioning, I think these, mass narratives around what mathematics is and what the mathematics classroom is, is also a huge part of it because we're also functioning in a system that math is massively test tested all around the world. We even compare countries based on math exam scores, you know, like the power of the power of these math exams, I think is totally you know, under talked about in terms of the harm that it's creating, like the mat, the, the idea that, you know, we are pitted against Japan in terms of our students math scores is so much massive amounts of pressure um, that ultimately trickles down into the math classroom and um, makes these. So, you know, we have to be doing our work to be working at the institutional level, questioning 
the importance of math exams and standardized testing and things like that. <clears throat> um, but going back to relationships, uh, some practices that I, one practice that I really advocate for is asking a lot of questions of our students and making connections between some of these math concepts and our everyday lives and, and having those conversations in deep ways in our classrooms. Um, so, you know, one of the things I've shared, let me think of an example. So if we're talking about the idea of infinity uh, in the calculus classroom, I, sure. I, love, I love the idea of infinity. Um, I think it's so theoretically and conceptually depth, has depth to it. But you can also really unpack, like, what does it mean to, for infinity to what, what, how can we even hold that concept in our minds and what connections can we make between how infinity shows up in different cultures? How does infinity like lifetimes show up in different mm -hmm. cultures, right? Like um, I'm thinking about the idea of reincarnation and that we infinitely reincarnate. And what does that even mean? Can we even re wrap our heads around this concept? And, and we can't. And that's why then we end up having faith and what does faith mean, right? Like these types of things can get into really deep theory, like that that idea of culture being really our our that the roots of our values, you know. And you can take these mathematical concepts and really have deep conversations with our math students to get at what our cultural values are. Um, so. Yeah, so I really advocate for that, taking these math concepts and really unpacking them and creating questions for our students to explore so we get to know them better. And also they bring their lives into the math classroom that way. Um, I think if you've read Chris Emden's new book, he talks a little bit of STEAM, STEM STEAM dream. Um, he talks a little bit about, uh, he has this vignette in there that I love that he says he took his students to the park and he took what they were talking about and made that into his next science unit. And I think that when we think of like anti-racism and social justice in the math classroom, sometimes what ends up happening is we create these word problems that are really problematic that are around, I'll hear word problems around, you know, like um, people talk, like they think a social justice issue around police brutality and they'll start creating word problems around police brutality but it's completely disconnected from students lives and it's just there to reiterate trauma right so we have a lot of people out there that are suggesting these types of anti-racist math problems or whatever um but i just love that and this idea that we're not just creating generic social justice math problems that's not an anti-racist restorative practice we're getting to know our students. We're getting to know what matters to them in their lives. And we're building math curriculum from that, right? And we're making connections between mathematical concepts and what's happening in their actual lives. So I gave an example of this um, unit I used to do, you know, this idea of whether college is even worth it, right. <laughs> given the massive amounts of loans that we have to take out is an incredibly valid question that I think a lot of young people grapple with, especially in high school. And I never wanna push college when I know 
that going to college actually may be an incredible burden. I know the incredible benefits, but I want to be honest about both because I never want to push a child into into having massive amounts of debt with no plan, <laughs> no understanding, you know, no like obviously, but I do think there's this idea that, you know, college, you have to go to college, you have to go to college, but the truth of the matter is is our system is so broken and treats people so horribly that there's a lot of challenges with that that a lot of young people are facing. Um, so I created, um, from those conversations that I was having with our students, we created a unit around, um, you know, graphing how long it would take you to actually pay off your loans and you know, choosing a school that you would actually like to go to and like finding out what the tuition is for that school, kind of understanding the financial aid, even options around that, you know, you could get it for free, but what if you don't? What if you don't get all the financial aid that you think you, that you need, which is the reality is of a lot of our students. And so, and then the job that you're thinking of that you want out of college, what, what are those salaries actually? And then let's, right. let's map that. And how long is it actually going to take you to, um, to pay off your loans? And so I found those conversations to be really meaningful and that really came out of, so we were learning about math, we were graphing, we were t thinking about exponential functions, we were thinking about, you know, all, all these, all this algebraic thinking, but it was really grounded in a, in an, in a question that my students were facing in their real lives. So now there's this tension again that we keep coming back to. So we just talked about restorative justice, which once mm -hmm. again is at this interpersonal level. Mm -hmm. Well, as math teachers, you and I both know that we can provide these different real world examples. Mm -hmm. We can do projects with them, but ultimately we're doing this within a district or an institution where mm -hmm. they got to take the regents right. in the spring. That's going to determine whether or not you still have a job at the yep. end of the day. And that's going to ultimately determine where your students will go to school for either high school or even if they're in a, an, an advanced placement or even a, a, right. a gifted program, a magnet school that they're considering. Right. Because these are things that they look at. So I'm wondering, so important. knowing, knowing how um, important it is to build those relationships, how are you able to navigate those waters mm -hmm. um, of the system that is very much antithetical to what you believe math should be from a restorative justice standpoint. Right. Um, okay. Well, I think as math educators, we just have to first acknowledge what we're doing for the most part is not working. Right. <laughs> right? Like, Rote memorization, copying notes, not working. That that is that should be put in the past. That's not working. So we have to be really creative around, you know, even in terms of testing. Okay, testing. I will be fighting against standardized testing, but it's a reality in in the vast majority of our math classrooms. So we have to be thinking about it, and it is often the access point to which students of color 
can have access to you know other opportunities. So we do have to be thinking about it and creating better ways in which we are talking about the test and um, teaching to the test, whatever that means. Oftentimes I show up into math classrooms and teaching to the test looks like giving students former questions from the test and then just walking them through it. And it's very, you know, that is not going to work. I think that we can just acknowledge that it's not that I'm, it's not that I'm advocating to, to, you know, to do away with something that's working and then, and, and, and move in direction and destroy everything and move in a direction. I do believe that having more restorative practices in the math classroom will help students navigate these challenges that they're being faced with, like standardized testing. That's really not going anywhere for a really long time, because even if they go into college, they're going to have to take tests. They're going to have to maybe take, you know, the LSAT or the GRE if they want to go to. So they do need to know how to navigate some sort of standardized testing. Um, so I think that in terms of building relationship, in terms of reducing our anxieties around testing and kind of understanding even like talking to students about um, the racist institutionalization. What are the racist, what's the racist history around standardized testing? Because you know, it does have a, it does have a lot of classist, racist, capitalist kind of un underpinnings to it. So talking to students about that, I think, can be really powerful um, and kind of dispel these ideas, especially with students of color, that, you know, this racist trope that Asians are good at math, black and brown children are not good at math, and that is constantly reinforced through showing standardized testing scores where wow. Black and Latinx students are doing worse than white and Asian students and we're bombarded by this bias um, that's being reinforced by a bias test. And so, you know, we do have to work with students, work within ourselves to dispel some of those deficit mindsets that we have about our Black and brown children in our classrooms and work with children to, because they've internalized that idea too. They've internalized the idea that I, as an Asian person, am just better at math naturally. That's that's something that's so ingrained in our society that we do have to work with students in dispelling that. So, you know, I think being honest, transparent, having conversations about what testing really is and what it means, and it doesn't mean you're, you know, it doesn't mean anything about your own capability or your intelligence. It's really just this is a skill and a test. And then I think that if you don't have deeper relationships with your students and if you're not in right relationship, then you can't help them navigate. They won't come to you to explain what their challenges are. They won't come to you when they're struggling. So you won't be able to help them navigate these challenges that are that are inevitably going to appear in their careers as mathematicians. Um, so, yeah, it's a little bit about how I navigate it, but I think if you are inspiring students in the math classroom, then when we do sit down and we're like, okay, let's look at how the same thing that we were doing, but in a real world context is showing up on the test. What are the words they're using? How is it similar? How is it different? 
you sure. you have you have more yeah you have more of a of a backing and a foundation with your students to be able to have those those conversations and make the links because at the end of the day we want to you know give our students the the confidence and the power that with whatever they'll face they'll be able to work their way through it and that's really by creating space for them to experience magic and their own abilities in your own classroom. Um, yeah. So like, I think, you know, some of the tools that we use towards testing and whatever, closing the achievement gap, um, <laughs> whatever that means, and you know, are like uh, massive amounts of intervention. That's what I usually see in math classrooms. So, you know, our black and brown students are not achieving in math. Okay, what interventions can we constantly throw at them? And sometimes this means, um, you know, black and brown students getting stuck in remedial classes for years, like stuck in algebra for three years because they haven't, and, and nothing has changed systemically or in the way that we've taught that class. Um, they're just constantly being stuck um, and that's our fault. So the question is getting away from, how are we going to get away from this intervention mindset and realize that our, our core curriculums and our, the way we're teaching the regular curriculum, <laughs> just the basic concepts of math needs to change to reach a wider audience, to be more culture sustaining, to be more anti-racist. So we're not losing children along the way and then trying to patch it with with these interventions that aren't even working and that are making students feel even more disconnected from math. Um, so, yeah, so I really think like, for example, I think something that gets really tripped up in high schools is fractions and students are really nervous around fractions and ratios. Um, yes. So, and, you know, that's directly coming from experiences that they've had in, in their younger years around um, not truly understanding the concept of proportional reasoning and then seeing these numbers that are like on top of each other. And then the, you know, and then learning these like rote ways of dealing with them. Um, so oftentimes I'll just like put ratio, like the first time that we kind of talk about ratios, because I have such a, a large um, knowledge base, you know, any classroom has a large knowledge base, especially in New York City high schools, because they're coming from so many different schools, and then they're coming into your classroom. So their middle schools of education are like, they've had so many different types of teachers explaining things in so many different ways. So instead of thinking, oh, I need to separate the students who don't do ratios this way, that don't understand cross multiplication, they mm -hmm. need an intervention. These students need an intervention. And these students understand cross multiplication so they can go ahead. You know, that's kind of the mindset in a lot of math classrooms I end up in. Um, and what I'm really asking is, what if we just gave some, you know, some ratio tables that had some blank spots in it to all of our students on the first day? And we said, find the empty blanks. And we just asked that question. Any student would be able to do that they would access it completely different. And then what if we just observed how each one of our students is approaching proportional reasoning? Exactly. And then let's grow from there. Then we've created an access point for everyone. And then we're going to develop 
and share amongst each other, oh, I did it this way, or I did it that way, then, then you're building a community of learners where no one feels like they're behind, which is a huge problem in today's mathematics uh, education, where we're creating this narrative that some students are behind and other students are not. Really, any, and to me, any student can access algebraic thinking. It's, it's, it's just, it's, anyone can access it. It's how you present it. And, um, and so I'm just really advocating for that simply. <laughs> yeah. And that's another example of how we make math more subjective because honestly, right. it's all about context at right. the end of the day, depending on what school you went to, who taught you the math. Exactly. You're going to acquire uh, certain methods right. for for solving the problem, especially when you talk about proportional reasoning. There's so many different ways you could even attack the problem. Yes, outside of just cross products, like there's so many different ways because such a broad uh, concept in itself. But I, I do I do want to focus on this restorative and transformative justice. Uh, conversation we're having because this is something that just came up for me. Okay. Here's the reality. The reality is many of our students are probably not going to use I'll say 80% of the math that we're teaching them particularly at the secondary level unless they're going into a STEM focused major in college or right. career after mm -hmm. college. That's just mm -hmm. the reality of it. So when we think about restorative justice, mm -hmm. we're looking at we're looking at addressing the social emotional welfare mm -hmm. of our math learners. Mm -hmm. How do they feel about doing math? That doesn't mean that they have to be a straight A student or even a, a B student. If they're a straight C student and they love every minute of math, I feel like that should be most important. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, is how they feel about themselves. Right. Now, when you think about the transformative justice piece, knowing that 80% of the math they're probably not going to use in their career, especially if it's not STEM focused, mm -hmm. should the focus of our instruction or teaching of math be more about those intangible skills that they do grasp from our instruction. So it's not so much about whether or not you can convert a mixed number mm -hmm. and make it improper. Right. It's not so much about whether or not you can solve a multi-step equation and, in, and do the inverse operation in order to keep the equation balanced. Like those things... We're not thinking about that. It's more about the different um, skills and habits that you develop, mm -hmm. the critical thinking skills that you need in order to transform the very systems that are operating within this, within this white dominant cultural scheme. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's really what it should be about. So I want to know your thoughts about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have like two thoughts. One within the system, one just completely outside. So I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
you know, I, I was talking to a colleague and she, who, who coaches in math and she was telling me about some professors that were, are informing policy in California and exactly what you're saying. Yes. Like just completely criticizing the order, like the, the stringent order in which we learn math, the obsession with that calculus has to be the end of our high school career. And mm -hmm why calculus when statistics is really and you know financial literacy or you know a finance class in general like other numbers theory may be way more applicable to way more jobs and college courses right the vast majority of our students that go to college are going to take statistics and yep why is calculus the end-all be-all of high school? Luckily, in my high school that I taught in, they did have a statistics class. So I felt that a little bit better by that. But not every high school does. And calculus is like the power, you know, the end-all be-all. So it's really interesting. People are really talking about what should the curriculum even be and look like, um, given the reality of our world. And I think that that's really fascinating and completely true that we are so stringent in our understanding of what mathematics is and what the curriculum should be and sometimes when right. you talk to math educators they're such purists and i just think that that is a function of white supremacy that you believe that this is the one way and all and be all of what mathematics should be and how uh you know just silliness but yeah there's a lot of people that are fighting for a completely re-envisioning of what high school mathematics should look like. <clears throat> um, and then just completely, if we blow it up and we liberate ourselves and we create the world that we want. I mean, I, I often talk about, there's this school in Sekmal that I got to visit. Um, it's, it's sorry, the school is called Sekmal and it is in Ladakh, India. Mm -hmm. And it's a school that, um, <clears throat> Basically, the founder was an engineer, but he just passionately loves engineering. And he's also from the similar area. And he it's a boarding school where he only takes students who have failed the exam, the state exams. And a lot of them have failed the state exams because they don't learn English until later in their in their schooling. And so not all of them are proficient in English and the high school exams are in English. So silly. So, <laughs> so ridiculous. But so he only takes students that are, have failed the state exam. And by the one year of being at the boarding school, the vast majority of them pass it. So he must be doing something right. And what he's doing is he's created an entire environment where they're, they have complete autonomy. Um, the school is completely sustainable. They have a garden that feeds them. They have um, cow, they make cow dung into gas for their ovens. They wow. learn how to use the soil. Um, they've created, they, the students themselves maintain the irrigation system that feeds the garden um, and the farm. You can really say it's large. And um, they, they have created completely sustainable materials to build the housing to keep it cool and warm. Um, because it's in the mountains, so it gets really cold in the winters. So it's cre they've created an insulation system where they create some airspace pocket in between the oh, wow. and they teach the students how to do this. They have a class with an engineer architect, 
And he teaches them how to use the local soil to create housing. So when they go back to their villages, they can teach the villages, um, their, their community, how to build housing. And then on top of that, they learn English through practice. <laughs> they have to listen to the news and decipher it. And then they have to do presentations in English. And they're all just so shy and <laughs> unsure of themselves. But this, this like real application of the use of English exponentially, um, they exponentially grow. And um, so it's just when I think about like what a math classroom should look like outside of these constructs that have been placed on us, like I think back to my mom's art that she used to create and things like that. You know, this leader of SECMO is developing the first man-made ice glaciers because the glaciers are melting in the Himalayan mountains, which are going to make that area um, devoid of water and inhabitable. Wow. So just imagine, <clears throat> I mean, the inspiration that this guy has on his student population. I mean, he's a He's a mathematician and a social justice activist, and he has created this radical school and is solving global problems using math. I mean, the 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 connections that these children are probably making and the inspiration that they have in math is just mind blowing. So, you know, I also think about that. <laughs> and that's the direction we need to go with math, right. especially in the United States. We got to get it to that point where it's not just about what you can do on paper, but how can we apply it in order to liberate ourselves, particularly, you know, as black and brown people? But yes. part of it is reframing how we think about math because we have such a a negative, a negative, you know, perception of what math is, you know, to us, but yet so much of the math that's out there is math that we created. But once again, that's something that I even talked about in a previous episode with a, a sister who does a lot of work around ethnic studies and math. Yeah. We talked about the very issue. Um, and it's something that we have to continue to have conversations about. Uh, but Neha, this, this has been another great conversation. And, and well, honestly, we, we, we can keep on going with this thing. But we might have to do a part three. <laughs> <laughs> that's just how it is. But but listen, uh, before you do roll out, uh, we do have a quick lightning round. Uh, just a couple of questions to wrap things up. So uh, first question I have for you is, what is your most favorite math subject or skill to teach or learn about? Okay, I will say I love to teach about, oh, well, I'll just say, mm, oh no, I don't know. <laughs> I think I do love proportional reasoning. That's what we talked today. I love proportional okay. and talking about proportional reasoning. So I'm going to say that we did talk about that today, but I was just tutoring someone in statistics and we were talking about Z scores and it was like kind of fascinating talking to him about Z scores. So I liked that too, but I'll say proportional reasoning. There's just so much wealth of what you can do when you're talking, you know, talking to students about proportional reasoning that I enjoy creating lessons and things around that. Cool. And then my last question is, what's your least favorite or most difficult math skill to learn or teach? Yeah, I'll say like <clears throat> when we get into calculus and it's just like so uh, algorithm rote memorization, <laughs> like you just have to memorize. And 
I've always had a lot of trouble um, demystifying a little bit of those, that part of calculus, but also like, um, I think, yeah, I'll say that. <laughs> That's always been my struggle. Uh, cool. And that, and that's something that I think we all struggle with from time to yeah. time. There are just certain things about math that we're not able to, to demystify yeah, or, or even like unpack for our students. Yeah. Yes. I, I, it's always been a struggle and I, I, it breaks my heart when, um, I just, when a student is like looking at the board, like, what did you just write? <laughs> like oh no i traumatized this student <laughs> you know there you go. where did all these numbers come from you know that gets increasingly harder when you get into calculus so, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so i had to do calculus one two and three during uh -huh. my first three semesters in college and man that was tough those were yeah. some, tough, some tough years it was it was i got through i got Good. through though. yeah I think yeah. like what the shame also. Oh, and we're probably leaving, but the the how we learned calculus was also such rote memorization. And what I do like about calculus is like it's beautiful conceptually, but that doesn't that so often gets lost in our college classes. Um, you know, so it, I, it's probably more of like I need to learn calculus better for myself so I can help to demystify it for our students yeah, that's true but it also <laughs> depends on who's teaching it too because the right. professors i had were brilliant yeah definitely knew their math but they were very awkward socially yeah. and exactly. didn't really know how to interact right uh, with, with students yeah so I, I think if i had a different professor teaching that same content right. i would have had different results but that's yeah. just in hindsight, um, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, but listen, uh, Neha, I, I want to make sure that <laughs> I let you go and enjoy the rest of the Sunday. So yeah. uh, for those who may not know how to connect with you, uh, where can they find you on social media? And what can they do to support the work that, you, that you're doing? Because you're doing some doctoral work, and mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken, you're looking for people to interview, particularly administrators and principals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that I'm. I, I have my school sites, so I'm good with that dissertation part. Most definitely in the future, I love connecting with um, math educators. I love connecting with restorative justice practitioners. So, if you are one of those, please feel free to reach out. And because um, who knows what the projects lead to in the future, you know, and yes. what opportunities we can create together. So. Um, but yeah, my handle on Instagram and Twitter is Neha Joya, N-E-H-A-J-O-Y-A. -A. You can definitely follow me there. Um, DM me, love to talk. It was great being with y'all today. Yes, and it's great to have you back here. And hopefully we can have you back for a third time. You'd be making history if you came back for a third time. <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> I haven't had any third time guests, so who knows? You may be the first one. But thank yeah, you, man. Of course. Listen, have a great rest of the day. You too. Have a good one. All right. Thank you. All right, y'all. So we about to end another episode of Radical Math Talk. And as always, I wish you all good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, everybody.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Radical Math Talk. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, and all other streaming platforms. We are always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard today, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at identitytalk4educators.com. I'll say it one more time. identitytalk4educators.com. Thank you and have a great day.